This is the recording made in the chapter of the open book and is number two of the series entitled The Unity of the Spirit. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together and if you will join with us, will you switch off for a little and read with us 2 Timothy chapter 2. You will notice in this chapter he says in verse 5 if a man also strive for the masteries. Well, that's a striving which is commended. It says in verse 14, Of these things put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord that they strive not about words to no profit but the subverting of the hearers. Strive not. And then at the end, it says, And the servant of the Lord, verse 24, must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach. It says apt to teach in the beginning, it says apt to teach again. But this is associated with patience, meekness. And we're going to consider that again this evening when we're looking at Ephesians 4. I suppose, unless we had the word of God in heart and mind, it wouldn't jump to our thoughts that one of the qualifications to be a teacher is meekness. But I suppose we have sat sometimes and listened to people who are so bombastic that it spoils the very teaching they are out to give. Oh, by the way, do you know the word bombast originally meant cotton stuffing into Elizabethan clothing? Have you ever heard of a, uh, heard an address which is stuffing? Well, you see, we've got things that are on the right hand, the left, that we have to walk very warily if we are teachers. And James, our version says, masters, it should be teachers. It says, be not many teachers, my brethren, for you're going to have a greater scrutiny than the other man who's not. For there's a wonderful power in the word that a man speaks, for good or evil. And therefore I ask prayer for myself, that when this series starts, these tape recordings that I cannot recall, that the Lord will keep the door of my lips. And positively, not negatively, use the earthen vessel by filling it with his own truth. Well, now we're coming back to Ephesians chapter 4, as the subject before us is the practical outworking of the truth of the mystery for which we, as a company, stand. The last time we were here, we were looking at the balance of truth suggested by the construction of the epistle with the figure of a pair of balances before us. Three chapters, speaking generally of doctrine, balanced by three chapters of practice, and pivoted on the word worthy, and rightly so, because the word worthy itself means how much is a thing worth, what does it weigh, and so we have not worthy to be compared, one of the translations, comparison. Now, most of us, if we've got any sensitiveness at all, are rather concerned about the fact that we've got such a high calling. We're worried a little bit about our corresponding walk, aren't we? And you know, if I meet a person who's quite indifferent with regard to the fact that his calling is such a wonderful one, and he doesn't seem to be making very much of a show, that man's to be pitied. On the other hand, we mustn't be driven to sort of self-examination to such an extent that we forget some of the teaching of scripture 
before ever you start looking into your own heart, you're warned in the scripture what you're going to find. The best thing is to set your affection on things above where Christ sitteth at the right hand of God and realize that all your acceptance and all your hope is vested in him. Fruit is only produced by grace. There's a passage in the Old Testament that says they shall take root downwards and bear fruit upwards. There's a relationship between the root and the fruit. You'll be rooted and grounded in love and then ultimately the fruit of the Spirit will appear. But fruit cannot possibly be engineered. You you can't tie apples onto a tree and get away with it, you see. So let's be wise over these things and realise some of the problems we have to face. Face them as God would intend, but nevertheless, never let anything come as a cloud between us and our complete acceptance in the Beloved. Well, now we have chapter 4 before us with exhortations as to how we're to walk. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. Well, here we have this um, emphasis upon the calling. We are told in the Scriptures uh, to consider two things. Ephesians 1, the prayer is that you may know what is the hope of this calling. And then, from that knowledge and the inspiration that comes from it, we have the exaltation to walk worthy of that calling. And you may say, well, that's not the hope of the calling. No, but the next time it's mentioned, it is. It says in verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling. So in both the practice and the doctrine, the hope of the calling is stressed. The hope is likened in the scriptures to an anchor. Now, I'm not much of a naval man. Uh, I don't think I dare talk about the one end of the boat and the other. I'll get wrong. But I do know this, that if I was standing on a cliff, I think I could tell you which way the tide was going if the ship was anchored there. For I've been given to understand that an anchored ship swings round and faces the current. And so does an anchored Christian. A Christian that's not anchored drifts with the current. But he turns round and faces it if he's anchored. Well, that's your hope. Now, your hope, of course, is the future thing. Not what you are now, but what you will be in Christ. And faith is putting out its hand and grasping that for which you have been called. So here we have the hope and the calling. So he says, Friends, my concern now is that you walk worthy. You know the word walk is used of um, a manner of life, calling. We speak about walking the hospital. Uh, in fact, we use the two words almost synonymous. You could say to a person, what is your calling? Or you could say to them, what is your walk in life? And so there's not a great difference between calling and walk. The only difference is that they're two sides of the same thing. You show me your calling, I'll show you what sort of walk you ought to have. You show me your walk, I'll make a guess at the calling you have. They should correspond. 
they should harmonize. Uh, we, for the purposes of instruction, we take them to pieces. But in physical fact, in literal fact, they go together. So now let's give a, some consideration of the way in which this is introduced. Well, I've already drawn your attention that the word Lord dominates chapter 4, 5 and 6. And if you took my, up my challenge last time and counted the numbers, you'd be all eager to tell me I made a mistake. But if I come in front of you and acknowledge that I said there were 15 and there are 16 references, we make it all square again. Two of those references are translated master. The rest of the 14 are translated Lord. It only comes once in the New Test, in the doctrinal section. It comes 16 times in the same space, practically, in the practical. Now, the Lord has put his finger on that and says, um, you call me Master and Lord. You do well. For so I am. But then he goes on to say, if I am your Lord and Master, it's a reasonable thing to expect that you will do what I say. We're not putting ourselves under law, and we're not handing out to one another a set of rules. We are our children belonging to a family. It would be a strange family, wouldn't it, if they had a factory act at the door, and they all clocked in for breakfast. You don't expect that in a home, and don't start it, friends, in your own life. We walk by the rule of the new creation. That's the only rule we'll have. That's Galatians. God once gave to the chosen nation the most wonderful set of rules that had ever been drawn up by man. And nearly or every civilized country, whether they acknowledge it or not, owe to the book of Genesis onwards to the, and the law given at Sinai, the basis of most, much, of, much of their laws. But those laws saved nobody. They largely exposed the failure of the man who received them. And now we come under the law of Christ, which is not a set of rules, but is simply to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Saviour. And one of the outcomes of that is to seek to walk in harmony with this calling. In Philippians chapter 2, there is a statement with regard to service, which I'd like to refer to. In Philippians chapter 2, he says in verse 9, For I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy shortly unto you, that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. For I am no man like minded who will naturally care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ's, but ye know the proof of him, that as a son with the Father, he hath served with me in the Gospel. That's about the highest ideal of service in the New Testament. Not a domestic servant, or a factory hand serving for an invisible master, but as a son with a Father. What a beautiful picture that is. He hath served with me in the Gospel. And while I'm dealing with that, I'll deal with one further thing. All over the Bible we have the word worship. And it's nearly always the word proscunio. In the epistles of the mystery, that word worship is omitted, strangely enough. And the only occurrence of worship in the prison epistles is in Philippians 3, 
We are the true circumcision that worship God in spirit, and that's the word that's already been quoted, of serving like a son. I can't conceive that a father would ever want his son to do all the bowing and the scraping and the ceremonials that go on in some places. We're not here to judge them, but that is our position. He doesn't say to us, bow down. He says to us, stand up as my son. That's not boasting, except boasting in Christ. For we have a sonship that takes us beyond principality and power. And so we've got this emphasis. All what manner of persons ought we to be, if anything that I've said is in any approximation to the truth of our position. Well, we come back to Ephesians 4, and we notice another feature. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, command you. Is that what the apostle said? Well, he had said command sometimes. He reminded one church, he said, do you want me to come with a rod? He tells you in another epistle that he handed somebody over to Satan. You can't play about with an apostle, for he comes with all the prerogatives, with all the power of the risen Christ behind him. So, you see what's happening here? If you'll turn to Philemon, the little private letter which is preserved for our benefit just before Hebrews if you'll turn to Philemon you'll see what the apostle means when he says I beseech verse 8 and 9 wherefore though I might be much bold in Christ to enjoin thee to enjoin thee that's to practically command thee that which is convenient yet for love's sake I rather beseech thee, being such an one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I beseech thee for my son, Onesimus. You see, he says, that Philemon, don't forget I could command you, but isn't it the spirit of our calling that he didn't? He said, I beseech you. So here's this man, writing to the Ephesians. He says, I beseech you. He introduces the walk that's worthy by a worthy way of witnessing because he's going to emphasize that before he gets to the matter uh, is dealing particularly with the manner. The matter is found in verse 4, 5 and 6. There is one body and one spirit even as you're called in, one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. That's the matter. But before he gets that matter and opens it up, he's giving a word about the manner. May I use a very coarse, lowly illustration? Nevertheless, I think we all know something about it a little bit occasionally. You can have a good joint spoiled by cooking or being served up badly. You see, we've got the joint, if I may use the figure, in the word of God. That's irreproachable. There it is. But how do I serve it up? Have you ever listened to a person with a frown upon his face, and he's punching the cushions, and he's speaking about predestination and electing love? You see? You can't do these things. They ought to be in harmony. So he says, before he gets to the matter that he's going to deal with he gets to the manner with all 
lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. That's the introduction. I drew your attention in 2 Timothy that one of the qualifications which is stressed is that in meekness he deals with those who oppose. He must have patience. And these are not academic qualities. They are deeper. They are a part of the fruit of the Spirit. So let's look at these and see what manner of people we should be if we are thinking, by the grace of God, of putting into practice the exhortation which is to follow. So that we do not spoil it by our manner. You remember how the Saviour rebuked? Uh, If you look at uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, just to get down to chapter and verse for each of these features, although you know it quite well, it says in Luke chapter 9, verse 52, or this verse 51, and it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. And they did not receive him because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elias did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, Ye know not what manner of spirit ye are of. You see? All may that not be a rebuke that we shall suffer. We know not what manner of spirit we are of. We have been saved by grace. We have been given a position that's beyond the possibility of human attainment. And we've got given a position which is not within, with, not within the possibility of being lost. In the passage we had read in 2 Timothy, we have a solemn word. If we deny him, he also will deny us. But he comes back on the first statement. If we died with him, we shall live. And even though we should be faithless, he cannot deny himself. You cannot forfeit life. You remember the book of Job? Satan was given permission to touch Job's health, his family, his possessions, but not his life. That's never given. The epistle to the Colossians doesn't say, take heed that no man rob you of your life. It says, take heed that no man rob you of your crown. There's a difference. So don't let some things take the place of the other because they can bring about distortion. Here we're on the practical ground and we want to have this manner. What is it to be? Notice the word all. I think we can realise that there are no half measures for a man like the Apostle Paul with all weakness. How far do I go, Paul? Well, he said, that question was asked once before by Peter. And Peter thought he'd made a great advance. He said, Lord, how oft should I forgive my brother? Until seven times? Then, of course, the Lord said, seven times? But unto seventy and seven. Well, you know, by the time you'd forgiven your brother 70 and 7, you got so used to it, I think you'd do a few more without reckoning it up, wouldn't you? You needn't be bound by those figures. But there it is. That's the spirit we're on. Now, this is with all what? Loneliness. Let's look at some of these words. I'll give you the word because some of you like to look these things up and examine them for yourself. I'll say it slowly. Tap, I knock, 
prosudi. Kapainos prosudi. Now the word kapainos and its derivatives has to do with that which is low. In the classical use, it's used geographically of low-lying territory. It can re- re- refer to a man who is of small stature. It is translated in the New Testament lowly in heart, a man of low degree, low estate of thy handmaiden, and the word humble. Here's the first, the first qualification for a person who is to be apt to teach in God's estimate. He said there's no speaking here about his academic qualifications. He may have letters after his name and may have letters before his name. But they don't count for the moment. They could all be spoiled. But here is something which is the fruit of the Spirit with all loneliness. Now let's see the way in which this word is used. And here we're going to get example. Philippians chapter 2. And by the way, when I've said example, we have examples in Philippians. And the moment you come to an epistle where you have example, you're not on the ground of salvation, you're on the ground of service. We're not saved by example. We'd be condemned by the example of Christ. We are saved by his death and his resurrection. But we are encouraged by his example to rise and walk in newness of life. Now we have in Philippians uh, chapter 2, verse 3, these words. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind. Here it is. Lowliness of mind. And I must uh, tell you again that which I've said before, because everyone may not have heard, that it doesn't say in these scriptures, but in lowliness of mind that each esteem other better than themselves, for that may be asking you to tell an untruth. I mean, would you say that it would be perfectly right to say that everybody that you know is better than you are? Well, you may say, no, I wouldn't like to say that, but true, I know some people who are ten times worse than I am. Well, admit it, it doesn't say that. And if you go on with this subject, you'll find that Christ is the example. Now, he didn't think I was better than he was. He's the example. So let's correct this and put it back as it should be. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in loneliness of mind, let each esteem the affairs of others of more consequence than their own. You're not reckoning somebody better than yourself. You're reckoning that their affairs are always to be of more consequence than your own. Look not every man on his own things. You see, immediately. But every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus, who did that. He did not look upon his own things. But he left the glory for our sake. Let that mind be in you. So we've got the contrast again between the word strife. We had it in three times over in 2 Timothy. We've got it here. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in loneliness of mind. Now the next occurrence of this lowly mind is in 2, Philippians 2, verse 8. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He humbled himself. That's my saviour. That's the lowliness of mind coming out again. He stooped. And the third reference is in chapter 3, 20 and 21. 
And again we shall have to revise the translation. Philippians 3.20 For our conversation or citizenship is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body. Now living three or four hundred years ago, that may have been better understood. James speaks about a person coming into the synagogue with vile raiment. And uh, in those days, people were called villains who were not wicked, they lived in villages. You see? Nowadays, a person who lives in a villa wouldn't like to be called a villain, but of course, language has changed. So we'll read out, leave out the word vile, and we'll go back to the fact this is the same word that is used of our Saviour. He didn't make himself vile, in our modern sense, he humbled himself. Well, let's put that in. Who shall change this body of our humiliation? And it's a body of humiliation in many ways, isn't it? Oh, many a time we have to acknowledge that. But a day is coming when he's going to change this body of our humiliation, that it may be fashioned like unto his body of glory. That's a hope before you, isn't it? Hang on to that, friends. That will help you to lift up your heads and seek to walk a little bit more worthy of this calling. And so we've got those references. Now, chapter 4, verse 12. He's writing to the Philippians, and he said uh, in verse 10, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein you were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect to want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am to be content, or independent, as the word could be translated. I know both how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed, both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. There, there is the word to be abased to be abased. So we've got it to be humbled in chapter 2. We've got it to be a vile body in chapter 3. We've got it abased in chapter 4. That's the character of the word. It stoops. Well now let's come back again to Ephesians 4 and see what else there is. I think we begin to realise we're up against a problem here. If we're going to try to meet this requirement in our own strength we shall fail. But he who gave us the calling gives us the necessary grace. You see what the Apostle says? Oh, he says, I could do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. He doesn't say I can do all things. Like in 2 Timothy, if you remember, he didn't say to Timothy, be strong, and then quoted Emerson's essays. Of course, Emerson hadn't written them. But he said, be strong in the grace which is in Christ Jesus, which is something different, isn't it? There's the source of your strength. No good patting a person on the back and saying, play the man, old boy. Say, no, I'll play the man too long. Let's play the Christ instead and put that into operation and seek to put on Christ and make no provision for the flesh. So now we've, we've got with all loneliness. What about this next word? Meekness. Meekness. Some people, by slipshod pronunciation, think that you said weakness. Let's test this. I suppose not one of you would hesitate to say who is recorded as being the meekest man in all the earth? 
Moses. Moses, the meekest man in all the earth, it's written. Well, he was a man who was brought up in the palace of Pharaoh. He was a man mighty in word and deed, in the wisdom and knowledge of the Egyptians. He was a man who could go back and face Pharaoh and could endure for 40 years the people of Israel and their terrible murmurings and disobedience in the wilderness. It couldn't have been a weak man, but he was a meek man. Now, I don't know what your conception of meekness is. It's not a cringing person. The basis of the word, the origin of the word, is the word easy. Easy. Are you an easy person? Now, it doesn't mean to say that you hold a truth lightly. But so far as the ordinary approach is concerned, are you always standing on your dignity? Well, friends, if you knew what you looked like, you wouldn't. But you haven't got much. Are you easy to be approached? You know, there are some little tin pot people that think that the only way that they can impress you is to just keep you waiting for ten minutes longer than is necessary. And Shakespeare's put his finger on that already. They ought to read Malvolio's little pretense of looking at his watch and uh, sitting with crossed legs for another five minutes, you know. No. Some of the finest people that I've met, friends, and I haven't met many of them, don't think, are what we call the gentry. Some of the finest characters I've met are those who had titles, and I haven't met many of them. But I've been impressed by the genuineness of their gentle birth. They were really easy to be entreated. It's the person who is a self-made man. Uh, well, of course you say, <laughs> it looks very much like it, yes. Self-made. Meekness. Now I want to look at this word meekness, James chapter 3. 17, so that we can get a little idea of this term. James chapter 3, 17. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated. If a person is endued with wisdom from above, it will be first pure. There's no adulteration. But it will be easy to be entreated. No standoffishness. No keeping you at a distance. For that builds up a Pharisee. And the Pharisaic spirit is very far from that which is manifested by Christ. So we have to do two things now. And then two references in the Gospel according to Matthew. One comes to your mind immediately, but let's see its context. Chapter 11. This is a reference to our Saviour himself and in connection with his children who are seeking to serve him. Chapter 11, verse 25. Now, at that time, that supposes that you know what happened at that time. Well, the preceding verses tell you that he could do no more mighty works because of their unbelief. And he said it would be even more tolerable for the land of Sodom 
in the day of judgment than from those cities that had seen his works and rejected him. <coughs> well, now that's a, that was a predicament to be in for anyone who had been sent by God to discover that the very works that were wrought by the power of God had been ineffective and it looked as though he was going to be betrayed and his work failed. What sort of spirit was he going to manifest? Well, that's where he's going to meet with you and me. Because if we are in the same service, we shall sometimes be misunderstood. Sometimes our very best efforts will apparently be in vain. Then what happens? We turn on to ourselves and we begin to feel that it's all a failure. This is what he said. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes, even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. There's no rebellion here. All things were delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father. Neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. Now comes the emphasis on the meekness, which is manifested at that time, he said, I thank thee. He turns to you and to me in this next address and says, Come unto me, all ye that labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. I don't know whether you've ever been into a study of a person who's dealing with the scriptures. If you came into my little study, or you'd see a lot of books and it's a bad etymology, but you see a lot of literature, plenty of it. But you know, one thing has got to be there, even though it's not visible. That's a yoke. A yoke. You don't have to have a visible one made of wood. But here, come unto me, all ye that labour. He's speaking to the servant. And are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. This is to be walking together with the Son of God. And he knew what it was to be misrepresented and misunderstood and to be set aside and apparently defeated. For I am meek and lowly. You see where we're getting? The Apostle never said to you and to me, you do something that you won't find in Christ. He said with all lowliness, and meekness. And I discovered that my Saviour before me manifested it to the full. But I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And another reference while we have Matthew to the use of this word is in chapter 21. Chapter 21. We're now nearing the end of the ministry of our Saviour upon earth. And it says, And when they drew nigh unto Jerusalem, and were come to Bethphage, unto the Mount of Olives, then sent Jesus two disciples, and said, You fetch this colt. And they fetched the colt. All this was done, verse 4, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, Behold thy king cometh unto thee. Meek. About the last thing you think of a king, as being meek. Well, he was the 
king after God's heart in the true sense. Meek. If you look at Psalm 45, it speaks about the king and his arrows are sharp in the hearts of the king's enemies and yet he rides in meekness, not weakness. So he says, Thy king cometh unto thee, meek, and sitting upon an ass and the colt, the fold of an ass. And some are misinterpreted and said, of course, riding on an ass showed how lowly he was. No, no, not in the east. Riding on an ass was a claim of royalty. It wasn't as we think of it now. You remember in the Old Testament, when one usurped the kingdom, he rode on an ass to show that he was claiming royalty. He had our saviour, that he was meek. No bombast. And then coming to something to do with ourselves, Galatians chapter 6, and to do with our dealing with other believers. Chapter 6. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a thought, well, that's one way of putting it. You have spotted it. You've discovered it. He's overtaken in a thought. Now, there's another translation, which is just as true. Brethren, if a man be overtaken by a fault, you haven't discovered him, the fault's tripped him up. Well, now, in either case, what are you going to do? Well, you can give him a lecture, can't you? But he says, that won't do much good. This is what you want to be. You which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness. Why meekness? Well, he says, I'll tell you, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. If I were in distress of mind or body or spirit, I wouldn't want to go to someone who was high and mighty and pharisaic. The one that would attract me would be one that say, all right, brother, I know where you are. I've been there myself. I wouldn't try to put him right. I would try to point to the one who alone can put us right. And we all need him. So here we have then an emphasis upon two qualities, lowliness and meekness. Two qualities before we ever get to keeping the unity of the Spirit. And then we've got two more. Long-suffering and forbearance. The loneliness and meekness are within our own heart. The long-suffering and forbearance is directed to the other person. And over and over again you find that's so necessary. What I want to do just at this moment is to read from another translation. I'm going to read a part of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You know 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is the Apostle's wonderful chapter upon the nature of Christian love. Well, I'm reading from Moffat's translation and i just give a word here in case uh, you who are listening to me may not know. But Moffat had a tremendous knowledge of language, its origin, derivation, purpose and meaning. But alas, he harmonised her to a large extent with the critics who cut the Bible a little bit to pieces. So this is not a uh, commendation unless 
you know where you stand with regard to the word of God and you can read with discrimination. But here you're on safe ground. Here there is no idea of a critic tearing the book to pieces. Here is one looking at it and giving you another rendering. I'll read this, 1 Corinthians 13, starting from verse 4. If you'd like to turn to your authorised version and notice the little differences, it may make it all the more pointed. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, starting at verse 4. Love is very patient, very kind. Love knows no jealousy. Love makes no parade, gives itself no airs, is never rude, never selfish, never irritated. Oh, goodness. This is searching, isn't it? Of course, it means to say that we have to acknowledge we are sometimes irritated. We don't deny it, but we say, hmm, slipped up there with the question of love dominating the whole thing. Never resentful. Love is never glad when others go wrong. Love is gladdened by goodness. Always slow to expose. Always eager to believe the best. Always hopeful. Always patient. Love never disappears. And then he goes on to speak about the passing of prophecy and the speaking with tongues and so on. Well, that's only put the same words again in a little different form. And so that leads us to Ephesians 4 to observe that the lowliness and the meekness and the long-suffering and the forbearing is to be in love. That's the atmosphere in which it grows. That's the ground in which it roots. In love. Well, that's prepared us, I trust, for the next movement. The next movement is our business, endeavouring. The next movement is to keep something, to guard it, and then to discover what its terms are. But let's stay here, shall we? Not be in too big a hurry. Let's realise what manner of persons we should be who look upon Ephesians chapters 1, 2 and 3 as the basis of our salvation and our hopes. Our position in Christ, the grace that's been manifested, the riches of glory that's yet to be revealed. So it's not asking of us something without a comparison. It is now put in the scale, put in one side of this scale, all these blessings all that you have in Christ, all that you are in Him. Now then, for the rest of your life, you'll spend all the grace that God can give you to put into the other side of the scale that walk which will be worthy. And I think we'll all admit that although it's a good thing to try, not one of us are ever going to be fully satisfied. We shall see there's ever so much more grace in the gift of God than any one of us in our lifetime can ever equal. God is not expecting more from us than we are able, but he does seek to see that we desire to do these things.
And if the desire is there, then the act may follow. And if the manner is echoed, the matter may look after itself. So when we meet together next time, friends, it will be considering the matter, the, what constitutes the unity of the faith. And then presently we shall go on to what constitutes the, the unity of the spirit first, I'm sorry. And then we go on to the unity of the faith. All these things are awaiting us. They are enjoined upon us. They are given to us as the corresponding walk in harmony with this most wonderful calling. So for the time being, we say goodbye to one another and pray that we may ponder and read these passages over and over again, and particularly 1 Corinthians chapter 13, with its emphasis upon the nature of Christian love.